Turn with me this morning to Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll read in a moment uh, this chapter together. Um, we're actually going to read uh, sort of piece by piece as we as we go through this morning uh, your outline, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later. I was recently in between two things in my day, uh, and I stopped at Chick-fil-A for some tea and, and study, and I had Habakkuk open there. And the employee at Chick-fil-A who goes around and checks on people and refills drinks and so on stopped at my table and said, I like what you're doing. We need to study the minor prophets more. So take it from the guy at Chick-fil-A. You probably, we probably need to study the minor prophets more. This uh, little prophetic book begins the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. And that's uh, really all that we know about Habakkuk. Uh, just the mention of his name there. Less is known about him than almost any other prophet. There are none of the usual notes here about his father, his hometown, um, anything like that. He's not mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. His name is apparently uh, not even Hebrew. But it's a fascinating uh, little book. Uh, next week we will come to the most famous verse in this book that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Um, but, but the book as a whole is rather different from other prophetic writings generally. Just think about the role, the message that other prophets um, have generally. Uh, they're bringing a message to the church from God. Sometimes a message of comfort. Uh, sometimes, often, they're confronting God's people about their breaking the covenant, being unfaithful or, or lax to serve God. And um, it, it's sort of similar to the last that we studied in in the Gospel of Mark, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus comes to the disciples and challenges them, wake up. How can you be sleeping right now? What are you doing? Well, Habakkuk is a, a different sort of prophetic book. And that the entire book is this dialogue with God where he's not confronting the people of God like that. He's confronting God. Saying, where are you? What are you doing? Why don't you act? Why would you do that? You know, it's, it's dangerous enough for the prophets to confront the people, to call them out for their inconsistencies. Well, Habakkuk calls out God for apparent inconsistencies with, with who Habakkuk knew him to be as Israel's covenant God. And so the whole book, as we'll see, is this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And it's very personal, very real a uh, very human book. It shows us how to, and it shows us that we can, bring really difficult questions and confusions and even complaints, in a sense, to God. Uh, as we look around in our world, you read the news, you read about civil war still in Syria, a Somali civil war. Of course, war in Russia and Ukraine, dozens of other wars ongoing, many that our news doesn't report on. You can hear of 40 million people enslaved currently worldwide. Abortions, countless cases of child abuse, and, and despite incredible medical advances, millions dying of disease, addictions, disasters. And we could go on and on. Many of these things personal, close to some of us. 
all of them in, in the world that's created by and governed by the God that we know to be good and just and loving. Well, Habakkuk in this book essentially reads the headlines of his day to God and pleads, what are you doing? Where are you, Lord? So let's work through this chapter and this discussion. Again, I'm not going to read the whole all at once as normal. I think the flow and dialogue will be clearer if we take it piece by piece, uh, point by point through your outline there. So look at, look at Habakkuk's first burden, his first complaint here in the first several verses. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk describes the things that he's seeing around him in Judah. Sadly, violence. Iniquity, wickedness, verse 3, strife and contention. There's constant fighting and conflict. Strife is a word often used for going to court. He's, he's perhaps lamenting a litigious society. Everybody's suing each other. The law, he says, is ignored. That's the Torah. It's God's law. Particularly, people are flaunting God's law as if it's not even there. Habakkuk says justice is never upheld. Those who have the authority or the position... To bring justice, and they refuse to. And so, verse 4, justice is perverted, Habakkuk says. People say or think they're doing justice, but it's, it's twisted. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? These sounds like many things in our headlines, in our world. And we need to be careful as we go through this book about how exactly we draw parallels to our experience. Habakkuk is lamenting all of this in a nation that was not only a nation, but was also the church, God's people. Uh, our nation is not the church. Uh, it is not and never has been a Christian nation. And yet we lament many of the same things around us. In a nation that has been significantly influenced by Christianity and, and the Western Christian tradition. And, and a nation which many people still at least pay lip service to King Jesus, to Christianity, we see the flaunting of evil and perversion of justice. And not to mention also just sin and hardships of human life that we all struggle with. There's some themes that come through in Habakkuk's complaint here. It's the, the sense of helplessness in what he says. The sense that a, a big part of his struggle is that he can't do anything about it. Maybe he's preached all of his life and, and things have only gotten worse. Maybe you feel that way. Uh, in a relationship, or with a, a wayward loved one. Uh, just to use a recent example, Christians have prayed and fought for years to have Roe overturned, as it just was. But now there are more abortions than ever in Colorado because of it. Uh, the pregnancy center has been burned, and abortion has been codified into law for the first time ever. You can sense Habakkuk's frustration. Justice just seems out of reach. He has no recourse. Maybe you've suffered in injustice in a job or at school or even in the church. That's, that's a particularly hard thing to deal with. Lord, how can that be? But Habakkuk describes all of this that he sees, but these things are not his biggest problem. 
Habakkuk's biggest problem, strikingly, is God himself. It's, it's God's apparent silence. Again, verse 2. How long, Lord, I call for help, you will not hear. You do not save. If you've really thought deeply about God's sovereign goodness and his creating and governing everything, and, and you've probably wrestled to put that together like Habakkuk with what you see. It's like, like oil and water to our human minds. Maybe you wonder, is God really at work? What is he doing? Is he, is he against me? Or is he just sort of letting the world go for now? Well, Habakkuk, or God responds then to the prophet. Look at number two on your outline. Look at verse five. This is God speaking now. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be guilty, they whose strength is their God. What is God going to do? What is his basic response? Verse 6, he's raising up, he's sending the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians, another name for the Babylonians, to punish Judah. And we know eventually Babylonians did destroy Jerusalem. They, they came several times. Ultimately, they destroyed the city and took captive uh, many of the Jews in 587 B.C. The Babylonians were rising as a superpower within 20 years before that. And so that's probably the, the time frame in which Habakkuk is prophesying. As Babylon is becoming a, a world power. That, that puts him as a contemporary with Nahum and Zephaniah and Jeremiah. And it's a terrifying description God gives of the Babylonians that he's raising up here. Verse 6, their mode is destroying and devouring. Verse 7, they terrify people. They arrogantly make up their own rules. They're a law to themselves. Verse 8, they're compared to leopards and wolves and eagles in their swiftness, their predation. Verse 10, God says they're just an incredible arrogant force that mocks and laughs at those who stand in their way. And in verse 11 uh, ends this description. I'll, I'll read it from the ESV. Uh, their own might is their God. They and their success is ultimately what they worship. They, they view themselves as unstoppable and irresistible. And so God says to Habakkuk, I see all this evil, this perversion, and I'm sending judgment. I'm putting an end to it. And so that brings us to Habakkuk's response, to God's response. Habakkuk's second burden, number three on your outline. And essentially, his, his prayer here is, the Babylonians, that's your plan? Lord, things are bad here in Judah like I've just described, but the Babylonians are far worse. This, this solution is worse than the problem. 
Right? They, are, they are far more perverted and violent and unjust than what I'm seeing here in Judah. And, and you're a holy God. You're the God of these people and you're going to let the Babylonians do what they want to with, with Judah. Well, listen to how Habakkuk puts this. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, Gather them together in their fishing nets, therefore they rejoice and are glad, therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk confronts God with who he is. He challenges God whether he can really justify his plan. Verse 12 He's, he's Yahweh. He's, this is his covenant name that points to his special relationship to his people. He calls him my God, my Holy One. And he asserts we will not die. That's essentially the, the promise of God's covenant. Lord, if we die, if you abandon us, you've broken your covenant promises. He's called rock here. God's holiness is the very basis anyone can come to him. He's perfectly trustworthy and just. He's, he's a rock. And then verse 13, Habakkuk pleads, you don't approve evil. How can you essentially bless the Babylonians to destroy us? How can you stand by while wickedness swallows people up? And he goes on to give this extended analogy. You, you make us like fish, just dragged out of the water to be eaten while the fishermen, the Babylonians, dance around and celebrate and worship their fishing nets instead of you. The true God. Lord, how can this be? Why is this your plan? Again, if we're thinking in our world, we probably wrestle with similar questions. Lord, if you are good and just, why do women and children keep dying in Syria and Ukraine? And, and why do women and children keep being are traded in, in slavery? And you seem to do nothing. Why are millions of babies slaughtered in abortion? How can you allow this? Why do loved ones die? How is that part of a sovereignly good plan? Well, look at number five on your outline then. And I want to turn to two things under this final point. We need to listen more closely, as Habakkuk probably needed to, to what the Lord actually said to him in his response. And then secondly, see how Habakkuk is... At the end of his answer, the part we didn't read yet, chapter 2, verse 1, and the chapter break is unfortunate there. Uh, at the end of his prayer, see how he's an example to us. But look back at verse 5, the very beginning of God's response to Habakkuk's prayer. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. God uses two of the same words here that Habakkuk used in verse 3 to God. Lord, you're making me look at all this, this stuff. You're making me see all these, these injustices. 
God uses both those words for look and see. Habakkuk, you look. You open your eyes. I am not silent. I'm not absent or deaf. I am doing something if you have eyes to see it. Something incredible, astonishing, wonderful. Maybe not in your way, not by your timeline, but Habakkuk, your, your failure to know or to see that I am sovereignly at work, even these difficult times, is, is your lack of faith. Right? You would not believe it if you were told. Well, the same is true for you this morning. You look at that hard thing in your life, or you watch the news, you do not see evidence that God is silent or unjust or not sovereign, but in fact ways that he's at work. Even if puzzlingly, he's pruning, he's discipling, he's calling to repentance, he's waiting as a long-suffering God for people to repent. We don't see a bifurcated world with the eyes of faith. You don't see Bad luck in some things and then uh, in, in these other things over here, oh, that was such a God thing, as, as people say. No, we don't have such a division. We don't see hardships over here and blessings over there as if God were in one and not in the other. It's, of course, very hard to do, hard to see the world like that for us, for Habakkuk. Why, why is that? Well, in, in part, what Habakkuk is wrestling with here is what Philosophers call the problem of evil. It's often defined as the the hardest philosophical problem there is. It is how can we have how can we know a good and sovereign God, and at the same time know so much evil and suffering? How can those exist together? The problem of evil, and there's really no fully sacri- fully satisfactory answer to that question. Uh, in the sense that we, we would go, oh, yeah, I see how it fits together, and, and we'd have no more questions about life. But we can say things toward an answer, and we can know the God of the answer. And, and here we and, and Habakkuk, in wrestling with that question, probably demonstrates at least, for example, a failure to take sin seriously enough. If, if we, like Habakkuk, think that God's answer, his using the Babylonians against Judah, was unjust or too harsh, and we don't see that that's simply a fraction of what our sins deserve. We probably, in wrestling with this, fail to appreciate our Savior. It is not the most astonishing thing God has ever done, becoming one of us, entering suffering, suffering for us, far greater injustice than we've ever seen, than what Habakkuk describes here. And we have the advantage over Habakkuk Great advantage of looking back and seeing far more examples of God working astonishing grace through tragedy, through judgment, through suffering than than Habakkuk had opportunity to look back and see. We can look back just, just to his very situation. The Babylonians did come. It was terrible. But we can see God's continued steadfast love and faithfulness through all of that to anyone who is faithful to him. We read those stories in, in Daniel. About him and his friends. We, we read of God's grace to and through Ezra and Nehemiah through this time. And, and to all those who returned to Judah. And all the way up to his sending his son. And yet Habakkuk's prayer also ends with an example to us. An expression of 
faith in God despite his doubts and questions and confusion. Look at the first verse of of chapter 2. This is the end of, of his prayer. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Again, Habakkuk didn't like God's answer. He didn't understand it. He couldn't see how it was good, but he resolves to wait patiently for God's further answer. If you know and trust the Lord, you know that's what you must do too. We can't understand fully, again, the problem of evil either. We won't have all of our questions fully satisfactorily answered. We have many questions in this life, but God assures you, I am at work among you if you will see it. You will be astonished. For one thing, again, getting at the the problem of evil, God allows us to taste evil and its consequences just enough that we would know all the more how good his goodness is, just how deep his patience and love are and how, how incredibly merciful he is. And through those things, he always brings good and grace for his people. In speaking of God doing astonishing, unexpected work, even through evil and suffering, is there really any example needed besides the cross? I mean, what better example of what God is talking about here, where he says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I am at work, but if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. Verse 5, right? That, that God would become a man and submit to being brutalized and murdered, the most evil, unjust day in history. This was God's work. You wouldn't believe it. And they didn't, right? Even, even the 12 apostles closest to Jesus, they did not believe it. They would rebuke Jesus when he told them that he was going to suffer and die. They were in despair after he died. And yet this was the greatest moment of grace and victory that God ever accomplished for his people. And so how much must it be true that as you look at things that you don't understand, God would say to you, I am at work. You will be astonished. If only you knew. If only you could see the big picture. God shows his character and saves his people in ways that are backwards to what we expect or want or understand. But that in the end will bring about perfect justice and peace forever. And you will be astonished. Uh, beyond your wildest imaginations. Can, can you imagine how in awe we will be at that last great day? We'll stand there and say with, with all the voices in heaven as Revelation pictures, the kingdom of the world, somehow, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And history is, is the unfolding of the astonishing sovereign goodness of God. I'll just close with one commentator's comment. Uh, on this passage where he says, let us wait for our Lord for he will surely demonstrate in the end that he alone is the Lord of history. Let's pray.